0: Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, Dr. Smith will be speaking with Dr. Ben Blyer on his article, Snot 22 Score Patterns Strongly Negatively Predict Chronic Rhinosinusitis in Patients with Headache. Scope It Out is made possible by support from FIAGON and Carl Storrs Endoscopy America.
1: Hello and welcome to Scope It Out, the podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host, Dr. Tim Smith. And today, I'm very happy to be joined by Dr. Ben Blyer from Boston. We'll be discussing his article, which is currently available online, entitled, Sinonasal Outcome Test 22 Score Patterns Strongly Negatively Predict Chronic Rhinosinusitis in Patients with Headache. Ben, welcome to the podcast.
0: Tim, how are you? It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Well, thanks for joining me. Your article really hits on, I think, a challenging clinical conundrum in our field, and that is differentiating between chronic rhinosinusitis and and headache disorder in its most basic comparison, I guess. The symptoms we know commonly overlap to some degree. And I also think the lay media has conditioned our patients, maybe it's the media and advertising has conditioned our patients to think that many of their headaches are are sinus headaches when really all of the evidence generally points away from that for the majority of those patients. And and then this generates patients with pretty strongly held beliefs that their headache is sinus-related when often that's simply not the case. And then as a result, we see all of the patients who head down the wrong pathway for treatment and the potential or even adverse consequences that that brings. So I'm interested in your thoughts on this topic in general before we dive into your article.
0: Well, I think you hit on all of the really key points that led us to look into this in a formalized and semi-quantitative way. It is interesting that, you know, we have a lot of patients that show up in our clinic and and really have a strong belief that they have these headaches and the headaches are coming from their sinuses. And in some respects, the most difficult thing with those patients is not making the diagnosis, but it's really walking them through the process and, and teaching them and educating them on what their headaches and facial pressure is from and what it's not. And really how to then change course and try to think about therapeutics that might actually help them. You touched upon, you know, a great point with respect to the media, but I, you know, we see a lot of patients who come in from Mm -hmm. their primary care or from urgent care and so forth who've been Mm -hmm. on multiple rounds of antibiotics and have gone through, you know, cycles and cycles of this. And so I do think it's it's not just the sort of lay press that's conditioning patients, but I think that they, many of them have gone through Uh, quite a long time suffering with this and trying different therapeutics and, and then for, you know, after potentially months or even years of this to have someone tell them point blank that they were, you know, this was not the source of their issue in the first place. Again, that's, it's a hard pill to swallow, no pun Mm. intended.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that's a really good point, actually. You are right. I think it's our healthcare system that also contributes to conditioning these patients. It's, it's interesting to me that, For whatever reason, a patient doesn't want to be told that they just have a headache or a headache disorder or a migraine headache or some form of other headache disorder. It seems that they like that concept that they have a sinus problem or a sinus infection. Patients just seem to prefer that. Have you ever thought about it that way or does that strike you as being consistent with what you see in your practice? I think
0: in a manner of speaking, it does. I think that patients in general want to have something, a a diagnosis, something formal to attribute their symptomatology to. And I think that in general, the sinuses, because everybody gets URIs and everybody has had nasal congestion, it's something that everybody can understand. Mm -hmm. Now, I think if we do our job properly and and the, the medical establishment as a whole, and educates patients that nerve-generated or ner- neuropathic-type pain or migraine-type pain is just as real and just as treatable yeah. uh, as sinusitis, that, that they can shift their need to hang that hat on the sinus diagnosis and can shift it to something that actually is the source. Yeah. And so I think that, that, again, that onus is really falls upon us. Right. And, you know, when I when I see these patients, I think one of the most challenging things I've had in my clinical career is actually – figuring out how to teach patients about this. And one of the things I like to, one of the words I like to use with them is masquerade. So I say that, you know, headaches can masquerade as sinusitis. And I think in some ways that takes the blame, their their own blame off themselves of how they could have misattributed their, their disease. And I think it puts it back on the disease process itself and it allows them the freedom to take on that other understanding.
1: No, that's a really good point. Uh, why do you think that patients are a bit embarrassed to maybe be told that they have headache disorder or be diagnosed with headache disorder, whereas having chronic rhinosinusitis seems just fine. It's almost as if, um, you know, it's almost as if there's a stigma attached with having headache disorder that patients are thought to be perhaps not as psychologically stable or, or something. I just get a sense that there's something else playing out here.
0: No, I agree. I, I don't have a, a a perfect answer, but I agree. I think there is a stigma. And, and oftentimes when I tell a patient, no, you know, we think of this may be some form of headache, you know, their answer is, well, I'm not crazy. Yeah. And so, you know, so I do think that, that oftentimes the feeling is that, that that diagnosis doesn't carry the same type of weight or the same type of medical certitude as a sinusitis diagnosis.
1: Right, probably something to study. That is, patients' perceptions about headache versus sinusitis. And to understand why patients are feeling that way, I I distinctly sense that there is a a large part of that going on. Certainly in my practice, there is. It's almost as if the patient is ego-involved with their diagnosis of sinus headache problem and so when you're trying to break that cycle when you've done the appropriate workup and you have eliminated a sinus cause you know, patients are reluctant to to accept that it, it's it's almost as if it's a challenge to how they know their body or they understand their body. Do you sense that in your practice? I, I do, and it's interesting that you say that. So, you know, my father is actually a psychiatrist who's now
0: been practicing for about forty five years, and and he he makes a similar sort of uh, comparison to a lot of disorders where where really it. That disorder becomes part of the patient's personality, part of their life experience, and to take that away from them. It's not just an issue of curing a problem, it's really, you know, changing their perception of themselves. So I think, I think that's exactly right.
1: Fascinating. I hadn't really thought about this leading up to our podcast. We digress. Let's get back to, uh, (laughs)
0: let's get
1: back to how, how did you go about studying this? I mean, your, your plan was to try to identify predictors of headache disorder versus sinusitis based on patient presenting, I guess, symptoms or quality of life. Tell, take us through that a bit.
0: Sure. So, you know, as you noted, we see this problem quite a bit in our clinic. And if you look at the numbers in our paper, it's in the 20%, 25% range of the patients that present with headache. And so this has been something that we've thought about for quite a while. And I think there was a gestalt among many of the rhinologists in my practice that if a patient comes in and you ask them about their symptoms and the first thing they say to you is pain, whereas pain is the predominant and most bothersome symptom, that that in and of itself almost guarantees that they don't have sinusitis. Mm. And so we took that a step further and said, well, why would that be? If that's true, if that hypothesis is true, then it must mean that not only is pain not a, as severe potentially in patients with chronic sinusitis, but all of the other sinusitis-associated symptoms, congestion, loss of smell, drainage, those are the predominant symptoms. And so we started to think about this as not only what are the symptom features that um, are not as predominant in sinusitis, but then how do they relate to the features that we as practitioners just in general think we often hear from patients? who have sinusitis and obviously are part of the diagnostic criteria. So we sort of went about saying, well, let's do a prospective study and let's ask the next X number of patients, what is the most, you know, severe symptom you have? And then we would, you know, potentially go and look at what they were actually ultimately diagnosed with and, and you know, make some conclusions from that. But in doing so, we realized, you know, we really need a large population And I think the the aha moment for this was we realized we already have all this data. You know, we collect SNOT-22 scores on all these patients. They've already essentially answered all of those questions for us. And because I am in a very large volume practice with a lot of other excellent fellowship-trained rhinologists, we're able to pool our collective data sets. In this case, it's a retrospective manner, but since this is really a patient-reported symptom criteria, the, the retrospective nature, to some extent, becomes a little less biased and a little less problematic. Right. And so we're able to go back and use the SNOT-22 scores as a basis to begin to figure out how do we answer this question.
1: And we know that the SNOT-22 instrument can be broken down into various domains. And you've identified a couple of domains that are particularly revealing when it comes to distinguishing between these patients. Tell us about that.
0: Sure. So, as you mentioned there, depending on how you break it down, five domains to the SNOT-22 score. So, there's the rhinologic symptoms, the extra rhinologic symptoms, the ear and facial symptoms. So, this is that domain three, which becomes critical for this type of analysis. Domain four are the psychological dysfunction symptoms and then domain five is the sleep dysfunction and there is some overlap between the two depending on how you break them down. What we started out by saying was we took a very non-biased approach to it and said let's not predict which elements, which questions or which domains are going to give us the best answer. Let's just look on a broader scale at not only the individual questions but groups of questions and then I think the critical feature here is not just the grouping of questions, but actually the relationship of scores of groups to other scores. Right. Because, again, we felt that by pooling questions and then comparing them to other questions, we, we potentially would be able to come up with a more sensitive measure. And that was sort of the approach that we took with respect to the receiver-operator characteristic curve analysis and then ultimately the predictors.
1: And so how would you summarize these findings to the clinician when they look at their instrument, that's not 22 instrument, how should they interpret the instrument to help them understand whether the patient's more likely to have a headache disorder or chronic rhinosinusitis?
0: Right. So I think that what we found in a very formalized way is that if you take the domain three questions, so the questions related to ear and facial symptoms, and you take the scores of those...
1: Those questions are more specifically related to things like facial pain, like headache. Exactly.
0: Yes, exactly. Um, And so we take that
1: as our numerator. We add up the points there that the patient achieves, and we take that as our numerator... And then we're going to divide that by, go ahead.
0: By the domain one score. So these are the scores that are more specific
1: to the nose and the sinuses. So these are the so first. Nasal uh, congestion, UID. nasal discharge, the nasal obstruction types of symptoms. Exactly.
0: When we do that and we've created a cutoff, we basically looked at a range of cutoffs. And we did this in what we call a discovery population. So we took our first population of patients, which was about 724 patients, And we divided them up between those who were diagnosed with chronic sinusitis and those who had what we define as non-synogenic headache. And we looked at all the ranges of cutoffs. When we found the optimal cutoff, it turned out to be a a ratio of 0.66, which I thought was interesting because it still means that the domain one scores are still higher than the domain three scores in aggregate. But it just means that the domain three scores reach at least uh, that threshold that if that is the case, then in our discovery population, the negative predictive value for having sinusitis was 0.88. So essentially, what you can think of is that if you use this criteria to say this patient does not have chronic sinusitis but has headache, then you will be correct in about 9 out of 10 patients. Or another way to think of it is you have a 9 out of 10 chance of being correct in that individual
1: patient. Right. So fascinating. that, And it kind of hits to the overlap of the symptoms that seem to occur in patients with headache disorder and chronic rhinosinusitis. Exactly.
0: And then the other really important thing that we did here was we not only found this in this population of patients, but then we had to validate it. Right. And so we then went on to a, another independent population, which was, was, almost, was about half, slightly over half the size of the original population. So different patients, about, you know, a little bit more than half the same size, same characteristics. And then we applied that cutoff to this new population and found virtually an identical result, actually slightly better in the validation population. And this gave us tremendous comfort that this was not just an idiosyncratic optimized finding for the population we had in front of us, but the ability to take that number and apply it to a completely independent population, again, told us that at least there was some utility to this in the the broader clinical world.
1: So basically, your methodology looked at independent discovery and validation populations in order to come to your conclusions, which is really, that was really just an excellent way, I think, to go about the methodology in this this particular study. Where do we go from here with this? The
0: other thing I just want to mention before moving on to that is, is, you know, for the practitioner out in the community, even though we did this complex analysis and looked at multiple aggregate symptom scores, if you just take item 12, which is the facial pain and pressure score, Yes. Patients who present independent of anything else with a score of 3.5 or higher had almost the same negative predictive value. And again, this does, kind of touches on your point. How do you, how does this use, how will we use this in clinical practice? Because even we don't sit around and calculate the domain three or domain one score ratios. Right. But I think if you just take item 12 and you say, if this item is above three and a half, Already, it's unlikely that this is sinusitis. And I think, again, that kind of parallels this idea that if the predominant symptom is pain, there's a high likelihood this is a not a sinusitis-related symptom.
1: That's a very practical, real-world way to use this particular instrument. I find that more and more practitioners are using an instrument like this, not 22 a research instrument, but... For the last few years now, I've really used it as a clinical tool in my practice, and this is one more way we can, we can use this tool to help us distinguish between our patients. I take it that you use an instrument like this as an intake instrument on every patient that you see in your rhinology clinic.
0: That's exactly right, and that's how we're able to collect this type of volume of patients. But I think, you know, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning with respect to educating and bringing the patients along, I think that the ability to have this type of quantitative data and say, use this to teach a patient and say, you know, when I do your endoscopy and I see no inflammation and I look at your SNOT score and this is the pattern of score, now you can tell a patient that when you look at in the literature uh, in populations of over a 1,000 patients, this is where we can say the likelihood of this is X. And I think that helps patients to sort of start to internalize that. For example, another strategy I use is I say, okay, when we get the CAT scan, if it shows healthy sinuses, this will confirm my suspicion. So again, you don't hand the diagnosis in the first place, you sort of walk the patient through the process. And hopefully by the end, if you've done your job properly, the patient accepts that and then you can move on to the next therapeutic maneuver.
1: I often find that a useful technique for me is to explain the patient that the very good news is that their sinuses actually appear to be healthy, despite the fact that they and others have thought that their sinuses are unhealthy. And, and the fact that their sinuses appear to be healthy, based on our evaluation workup, is a, is a very positive thing. And that it also helps us to eliminate some of the diagnoses that can be given in a situation like this, I have good relationships with folks who treat headache disorder or neuralgia. And once we've identified that that is more precisely what's going on, I'm actually quite optimistic that those patients can be treated with good outcomes. And this is generally the way I go about helping the patient come to terms with shifting gears with regard to what they have thought is going on in their nose and sinuses and, and with their headache disorder. And I find that most of the time they will buy into that. Sometimes I say, you know, you've been on so many different antibiotics and steroids and perhaps some of them have even had surgery. And I say to them, we could probably keep beating on your sinuses over and over again and yet you're still going to present with headaches and facial pain that none of this seems to have solved. So it's a you've brought up education a few times, and I think it's a really good point that this really does require a lot of time with the patient. You can't just say, normal CT scan, your sinuses are fine. You just can't do that, or they will leave your office so unhappy with your care. That's been my experience anyway.
0: No, I agree. Ironically, these patients often take longer to treat, as it were, than the ones who actually have signs. But, you know, it's interestingly to your point about patients who have come in with surgery, we took this as an opportunity because we needed to look at the CAT scans to make sure these patients didn't have occult inflammation or or anything that could even be construed as sinusitis. And, And it did give us an opportunity, at least in the 724 patients in the discovery population to to look at a couple of other things that have been out there in the literature. So we did actually look at whether there was a higher rate of contact points in the headache group versus the sinusitis group and maxillary retention cysts in both groups. And and there, as you might expect, there was no difference between
1: the two. Yeah, but
0: interestingly, we did find a higher rate of conjubulosa in the headache group. Now right. that was nine nine point one five percent versus five percent, and it was it was just barely statistically significant. I don't know what to make of that finding, but I think it's interesting that at least some of the other more commonly thought of um, issues that could cause headaches, such as retention cysts or contact points, you know, we didn't see a difference in our population.
1: And let me ask you this, just from a practical clinical standpoint, how often in your practice have you found that a retention cyst was actually the cause of a patient's pain or discomfort or headache? To me, that would be almost unheard of.
0: I agree, and, and I think my typical line there is if you take 10, people, 10 yeah. people off the street and give them a CAT scan, one out of 10 will have it. And actually, yeah. again, that percent bears out in our population because it was about in aggregate, about 10% had a retention system. This just gives another layer of the ability of the practitioners to see a patient who has a retention cyst who's often been referred for the retention cyst to say, you know, the study was done, over a 1,000 patients were looked at, and there was no difference.
1: The concha Finding is very interesting to me, compelling even. It makes you wonder. I've, I've always been suspicious of contact point headaches. I imagine that there are some people who experience these. It's just difficult to differentiate between those who have contact and those who don't, because I find if you look hard enough, you can find contact in, in almost everyone.
0: Right. I think the other thing you have to bear in mind is that even though that was the case, there was only 43 contrablesses seen in the population of 724 patients. So even if in a small group of a subgroup that the contra might contribute, it's yeah. certainly hard to hang your hat on that. Yeah, I agree.
1: So where where do you think you'd go with this? Ideas for moving forward in the future from a, from a research standpoint? Or if someone was going to take on a new study, how might they go about that?
0: Obviously, the best thing for any paper is to be replicated. So replicated by another academic group, first of all, would be great but also a uh, community practice because we have to bear in mind that even though we looked at two different populations of of, a fairly large size, this is still a tertiary quaternary rhinology practice that we're looking at. And so I think the the replication in other settings is important. I also think what would be really very interesting is to look at in other cultures. Because we know that in some cultures, attention to pain or or discussions of pain are different and maybe less emphasized or more emphasized, and I wonder whether this would be valid in other countries
1: as well. Yeah, fascinating. Well, Ben, thank you. Your paper is really, really interesting, and I think it not only piques my interest and probably others about the differences between these patients, but it also greatly interests me some of the highly practical points that a clinician can take away from this. Number one, use your SNOT-22 instrument as as an intake instrument and, and get to know what those scores look like and begin to get comfortable with the domains. There are several papers published in the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology, our journal, about the domains. And I think as clinicians grow in their comfort with the scores, with the domains, with particular items that you have called out during the podcast today, it can really help folks to manage these patients much more efficiently, and I think with more confidence than, than we might have otherwise.
0: I agree, and I, and I want to thank you, Tim, for having me on the podcast. I've enjoyed the other ones, and it's an honor, but I also really want to make sure that I thank my co-authors and colleagues, Dr. Stacey Gray, Dr. Eric Holbrook and Dr. Nick Basaba, who practiced with me in our rhinology practice in Boston. But most of all, I just want to make sure our first author, David Wu, or Dawei Wu, uh, who's now back in China, he spent his uh, year doing a research fellowship with us, and he really put in the the hard work analyzing all the data and collecting it. So I, I just want to make sure you get the credit where credit is due.
1: Well, thank you so much, Ben, and best of luck with your future work. Thanks so much, Tim.
0: Thank you for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of Dr. Smith and his guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or of the sponsors.